At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. In Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today, we boldly go where City Lights has never gone before. And that is into a conversation with William Shatner ahead of his appearance at Symphony Hall. Before beaming you up with Captain Kirk himself, we explore places on our home planet. It's time for our recurring series, ATL Up and Away, Travel Tips with Rick Steves. Each month, a beloved public TV and radio host joins City Lights as our travel contributor to share a nugget of knowledge from all he has gained over many decades in the industry. Rick, welcome back to City Lights. So good to be with you, Lois. Last month, you helped us understand the structure of the EU in preparation for trip planning. So today, let's talk about how to plot an itinerary. Rick, how do you approach the blank slate of a prospective journey? Well, you know, it's so important to plan a thoughtful itinerary. A lot of people just don't give that much thought, but there's so many dimensions to a good itinerary. First of all, remember, we Americans have the shortest vacations in the rich world. We're always trying to do too much. And uh, and and we're all into superlatives. Everything is to die for. Everything is the best <laughs> anywhere. And, you know, no, no, no. Turn down the volume, you know, and your your time is a precious resource. There's a lot of focus on the money. You know, um, Arthur Fromer, who was my mentor, was the, had the only guidebook for the public in the old days. It was Europe on $5 a day. He was taking care of our money. My first books, which is sort of the next generation, my first books were called Germany in 22 days, Italy in 22 days. And I was tuned into how to use your time smartly as well as your money, because Americans now have more money than time in a lot of cases. So we've got to use our time smartly. And that means, uh, you know, think carefully about uh, the balance in your itinerary. I think fundamental uh, would be to assume you will return. Don't focus on what you're not able to see. 
focus on what you can see it and do it well and assume you will return. People used to buy the year rail pass, uh, which was all 27 countries in Europe or something. Now people buy individual country passes. We're traveling more maturely with more focus. You will go back if you have a good time. So just do Britain first. And then the next trip you can just do France. And then you could do Iberia, Spain, and Portugal. And then you can do Italy. Now notice what I just did there. I started in the mild and I worked to the more challenging. I think it's important to recognize and appreciate culture shock. And uh, culture shock is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's the growing pains of a broadening perspective. But you will handle it better if you start mild and work exotic. With uh, a lot of my tours, we start in the Netherlands, which are easy, and then we go to Germany, and then we go to Italy, and then we'll finish in Greece, you see. That's getting more and more challenging as we go east. I think it's a good idea to be mindful of that. Also remember, you don't need to go in and out of the same city. That is inefficient. You can go into one city and out of another city. There's no financial penalty for flying in to Amsterdam and flying home from Rome. That makes more sense than flying in and out of Amsterdam and going all the way to Rome and then returning to Amsterdam for your, your flight. So that's called open jaws. I would say when you're planning an itinerary, you should remember um, seasonal factors, um, crowds and weather. I can't remember where I was last week, really, but I know for <laughs> 20, 20 years of TV production, if you've seen my TV shows, if the show is in the Mediterranean, it was filmed in April or May. And if the show is north of the Alps, or in Britain, it was filmed in July or August, because I always take two trips every year. I take one in the spring and one in the summer. Um, in the spring, I'll be in the places that are too hot in the summer and too crowded in the summer. And in the summer, I'll be in the northern countries where you want longer days, you want more activities and more people, and you want better weather. And it's never, you know, brutally hot like like it is uh, down in the Mediterranean. So, um, you know, if you look at a show of Ireland, I shot it in July or August. If you look at a show in Portugal, I shot it in April or May. People should recognize the beauty of shoulder season rather than peak season. And I'll tell you, in the last generation, Europe has gotten hotter. And where we could get away with it in the past, if you don't like the heat, you really should avoid the Mediterranean in July and August. Shoulder season is that middle time between peak season and off season. Historically, it's been May, and September, my staff and I just got together a couple of years ago and we expanded it in our terminology. And now shoulder season is April and May and September and October. Mm. The value of going away from peak season is higher than ever these days. And I really think if, especially for older travelers that are wondering, can we really do this? The most grueling and demanding thing about European travel is the heat and the crowds of summer. Bundle up and go off season. I had a two-week trip from Italy in December, and it was cold. I, I, I was layering it. It was dressed like I was skiing almost, but it was great. No crowds. Tourist traps were not tourist traps in the off-season. All the restaurants were doing their thing. It was, there was wonderful energy in, in, this, in the towns, and I thought off-season travel made a lot of sense. Oh, yes. Excellent advice from the expert. Rick, thank you very much. Yeah. You know, enjoy the planning part of your travels. I, I just love planning my trip and it extends the whole experience. And then you will enjoy maximum travel thrills for every mile, minute and dollar when you finally get over to Europe. 
travel expert Rick Steves. More information about our series ATL Up and Away is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll boldly go where City Lights has never gone before and speak with William Shatner, Captain Kirk himself, amplifying Atlanta. This is WABE. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. The popular actor best known as Captain Kirk on Star Trek, William Shatner, is beaming up to Symphony Hall Thursday for an evening of storytelling and a screening of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Last week, I caught up with William Shatner via Zoom, and he began with a bit of teasing about NPR's serious reputation. There's a certain, uh, what would be the word? There's a certain solemnness to this. And I looked and I realized, oh, we're on NPR. No wonder there's a kind of (laughs) (laughs) tone. If it dispels any notions of NPR being humorless, I want to tell you, I stopped counting the number of times I sent your greeting card, the electronic oh. <laughs> greeting from Blue Mountains shout out where oh, you sang I, shout. I, I spent a day, I, I recorded it in a day, and then I spent the next day saying every name known to mankind. Yes. And every holiday that has ever been celebrated, it was quite an experience. Well, I loved it, and none of the people to whom I sent that fantastic greeting know that the others received it. So you personalized it in a way. In every way. And indeed, I, my wife got feedback from one of her, if I'm trying to remember the situation, her sister, she has two sisters, her sister called and said, you got Bill to do a, a, a thing for the other girl because how could you, and you've never done that. And my wife had to explain that she, that either sister could have bought one and sent the message. She thought I had recorded it. 
especially for the other sister. I love it. I'm William Shatner. I've done a lot of things in my career, but this takes the cake. This is so cool. You, Lois, today, it's all about you. This is just a big, fat excuse for me to say hi to you. Hi. It's exciting. It makes me want to celebrate. Makes me want to get up out of this chair. Makes me want to sing. Makes me want to dance. Makes me want to shout. Kick my heels up. Throw my hands up. Toss my head back. No, really, people should be shouting your name in the street. Come on now. Sing. Sing. Sing that song. Sing it out loud. I want to celebrate. Put it up in lights. No particular reason at all. See, no one else deserves to be celebrated like you because you are the best. I want you to know. I want you to know. I want you to know right now you make me want to shout. That's right, you make me want to shout because there really is no doubt. You know what I'm talking about because you make me want to shout. love it and I'm still sending it. But we want to talk about your appearance in Atlanta. This will be so exciting. I hope so. I'm coming to Atlanta with a, a really, I, I think it's unusual. I On the other hand, there may be like uh, 15 people doing the same thing, but I'll be there Thursday at Atlanta and I'm bringing with me the film called The Wrath of Khan. And it's been refurbished in, in color and in sound. And then we play that lovely film. And then to everybody's either excitement or disappointment, I come out 40 years later and apologize for gravity. We have fun. <laughs> After the movie, I come out on stage and, and the audience asks questions and I'll give uh, answers of one type or another and we have a great deal of fun so it's a great evening in the theater a movie and uh, the actor comes out and it's all very novel and and interesting oh you are being a bit too modest first of all i want to talk about gravity you weren't talking about the gravity that dealt with beaming you up right no You're... i'm dealing with the gravity that forces the flesh down yeah, I think the general consensus is that you have aged very well, Mr. Shatner. I don't think there's any argument. You know, this is not a gentlemanly question, but how old are you? Me? I am 69. So, you know, that was interesting because I'm reading a book on people who read minds, you know, and yes. how they grasp onto body language and inadvertent cues. And you gave an inadvertent cue to when I asked you how old you are. And I didn't do it deliberately to get an inadvertent cue. But I said, how old are you? You said, me? And like there was somebody else, which gave you a moment to pause. Do I want to tell him how old I am? Okay, I'll be 70 in July. Well, fantastic. I'll be 92 in three weeks. Oh, mazel tov. <laughs> so to me, you're a child. And gravity has not had time to really work on you. But... What I was about to say was, I have been inordinately lucky in my health, which is the key factor. 
And if people, as they go along in age and they get ill and they have ills and pains, although my shoulders hurt me, doesn't interfere with my talking to you, I haven't had any serious illness, which can rob you of the joy of life. And that's, that's a function of the way you live, I'm sure, but it's also has a great deal to do with luck. Well, and good genes, and in your case, such an active mind and life, and you are iconic in the role of Captain Kirk, but you have had a varied career, both behind and in front of the camera, in music, in horse breeding. Do you ever get tired of the Captain Kirk questions? Well, no, I'm not tired of it. And because I'm coming out with this Captain Kirk film, it's to be expected that they're not going to talk about the state of the world, uh, you know, what, what Putin might really be like. We're going to talk about Star Trek and, and it's as a show business phenomenon. Nothing has ever been like it. Nothing in our lifetime will ever be like it because uh, it's been on the air for 60 odd years, almost 70 years, almost as long as you've been alive. Yes. And I will tell you that part of the enormous appeal of Star Trek was the zeitgeist. You know, this was the time of the civil rights movement and anti-war sentiment. And here you were in this series. In the midst of all that, in in a future world. Did you know about those things at the age of 15? Oh, heavens, yes. And you were addressing them on Star Trek. Yes, so I'm expecting questions about Star Trek, because I'm out there with a Star Trek thing. On the other hand, because as you pointed out, I've done a few other things, I'll get questions about everything. I did an appearance at Kennedy Center a while ago, and songs that uh, a couple of guys and I wrote, the same team that wrote this album, Bill, that's out there now. There'll be a music video of the Diadem song called So Fragile, So Blue, so that my journey into space is memorialized in that song, which will be a music video. And in my fantasy, I think of it as a rallying cry for those of us who wish to do something about global warming. Amen. So depending on what I'm dealing with, it's what I'm talking about. What was your takeaway when you actually got to go into space. I had a very complex reaction. It wasn't like meeting fists and shaking the uh, champagne bottle. I had a profound experience. I've been an ecologist pretty much all my adult life. By that I mean, I was very much aware of The Silent Spring, Rachel Carson's book, seminal book, if you will. And I took that to heart. And so 60 more years ago, I was talking about the possible destruction of the world, which has gotten worse and worse. So I knew about ecology, and what I profoundly saw was the destruction of the earth and the disappearance of of so many uh, living things. So to tell you about it in a couple of minutes would not do its service. But if you come to the theater, 
I will answer that question in depth. So do come. Come and see the movie. Come and hear me out. And hopefully you'll be there. I hope so. This has been such a delight, William Shatner. Thank you. Let's celebrate several of your coming birthdays. Golden Globe and Emmy Award-winning actor William Shatner. He'll give a talk following a screening of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, on Thursday evening at Symphony Hall. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, City Lights producer Summer Evans speaks with the co-owner of Tucker's Infinite Realities and discusses their upcoming showcase of locally created comic book art. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. This Saturday, March 11th, Infinite Realities, Comics, Games, and More in Tucker will showcase over 40 original comic book artworks from Georgia-based creators. Art by renowned cartoonists including... Jack Davis, Ed Dodd, and June Brigman will be on display. Attendees will also get to see some hand-drawn sketches that went into producing many beloved comics from Marvel to DC to Dark Horse and other publishers. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with one of the comic artwork enthusiasts showcasing much of his own collection, Benno Rothschild, along with the co-owner of Infinite Realities, Chris Brenneman. Summer began with asking Chris about how his business pivoted during the pandemic. We pivoted by really leaning in to being the community hub that we had spent just over a year uh, building ourselves up as. And because of that, the community leaned into to helping us make it through the, the pandemic. And I saw that in 2020, Diamond Comic Distributors stopped all of their production of comics for several months. How did that affect Infinite Realities? That affected us. Uh, we, we couldn't order anything new. That was stock that we had when the world shut down was the stock that we were going to have to uh, stay afloat with for a couple of months before distributors went back. So that was a very scary proposition, knowing that you are a retailer who's uh, not going to be able to restock for a little while. And at that point, it was indeterminate when it would happen. Mm -hmm. And how have you seen the comic book industry evolve since the shutdowns and the pandemic? Have they changed their model in any way? They have. You saw a lot of distributors leave Diamond. Uh, I'm sorry, a lot of publishers leave Diamond and sign deals with other distributors like Lunar, Penguin Random House. So whereas when our store first opened, we could only order comics 
through one distributor being Diamond. And now here we are in 2023 and we've got so many options for us to where to order product from of every kind. So that's been liberating to have options like that. Absolutely. Because heaven forbid this happens again. <laughs> At least you have. Oh boy, howdy. Fingers crossed, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Benno, when did you start collecting comic art? Well, I started really as a, as a kid. I went to comic shows. I actually, I, I'm from Columbus, Georgia, and I, I drove up to my first comic show uh, in Atlanta in 1975, and I got a couple of sketches from artists who were there, and I actually got Stan Lee to sign a book for me. So uh, that was back when Stan Lee signed things for free and didn't have a long line. So, but the following year when I turned 16, I got my first kind of real piece of comic art. Uh, my parents bought me a piece for my 16th birthday and something that I still have today. Wow, that's so special. Absolutely. It's, it's super cool that, that it, you know, and it's, and the amazing thing is, is that at the time, uh, that piece cost $150. My parents were just kind of shocked that it would be so expensive. And, and now that piece is worth just a lot more than that. I believe so it. it turned out to be a good investment on top of a, a lovely present. So. Absolutely. When, so now you have a very extensive collection. What do you look for when you're deciding whether or not to add a piece to that collection? I'm looking for a couple of things. I, I think that the comic art is different from a lot of different, uh, a lot of other kinds of art in that it also combines a story. And so a lot of times I'm looking at the story and trying to decide, is this a story that I enjoyed? And is it something that I think sort of speaks to me uh, beyond the art itself? And then I'm looking at the quality of the art and whether I like the artist it's kind of an interesting thing in comics because the artist and the writer can sometimes be different people. You end up in a situation where you can like the art a lot, but not like the story so much. And you can like the story a lot, but not like the art so much. Is it ever difficult to authenticate a piece? If you, I mean, I don't know if you buy on eBay or online, but can that be a difficult process? I think with published art, it it's a little easier because you can actually compare it to what was published and determine whether there's a difference between the published art and what you're looking at. But, you know, really when I started out, there weren't a whole lot of uh, people trying to fake things because the, the art just wasn't that valuable. Now we're in a situation where the art can be extremely valuable. And of course, when there's money involved, then that brings out people who want to cheat. Yeah, which is very unfortunate. Yeah, it, it is. And, you know, buying online, which is, you know, a, a lot of what happens now, um, you know, a little bit of it is a crapshoot. Um, and so you're, you want to be able to trust the person you're buying from. Um, it's better if you know who they are. Um, and particularly if there's a problem that they'll refund your money. And, uh, you know, that works better when you're buying from people that are uh, well-known in the hobby or are dealers or people that um, have a reputation to uphold versus, you know, random people on eBay that might have something super cool, but if it turns out to be fake, you've really got no option. Right. You're out a lot of money. <laughs> Chris, why did you want to create an exhibition focusing on Georgia-based artists? Because I absolutely love comic books. I, and I love the craft that goes into creating them. And when I first met Benno and he invited me to his house and showed me these amazing pieces, 
I was taken aback with it. Benno's a, a, a very generous friend when it comes to showing off this stuff. And I've got a few comic art pieces myself, and I've always been really enamored with the process of it. And so when Benno and I first started talking, a lot of people don't get to see stuff like this up close and personal. And on top of that, we're getting a lot of people coming into comics because of Marvel and DC movies. And a lot of times the the people who originated these comics, they get lost in the shuffle. That They don't get their name front and center in credits. They don't walk the red carpet. But a lot of these stories are 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 made by these people. So to have, have an opportunity for the people in the Atlanta community to see these amazing pieces and then get to be exposed to the what's essentially their friends and neighbors. A lot of these people live here in Atlanta. They, they live all over. And to be able to see that people that live in their community have contributed to this amazing medium and have contributed to you know the modern mythology that we have here, that's very appealing to me. Yeah. It probably makes them feel more connected to the local celebrities around them. It absolutely does. And that's, that's important to me. Because like I said, to me, to me, people like Jack Davis, Adam Hughes, Tom Feaster, Dexter Vines, to me, it's people like me and Benno. These guys are celebrities. And so to make them celebrities to other people, that's, that's really exciting. Oh, absolutely. I know you just brought up Adam Hughes. And Benno, I wanted to ask... I saw that you feel that his representations of Wonder Woman and Black Widow are some of the best representations of those characters out there. Why do you feel that way? You know, these characters have been around for a long time. Though Adam was not the person who originated them, he was selected specifically because of his talent to do covers for uh, a long run of Wonder Woman and then a long run of Black Widow after um the movies had come out. Now, um, Adam was working on Wonder Woman before, I mean, obviously the TV show had been, uh, had happened in the, in the seventies. And, you know, this is a character that's well known, but his art really brought something to the character, you know, wasn't out there before. You know, I thought it was really cool that somebody local was so uh, front and center and that they were, you know, he was being entrusted with really on the on the Wonder Woman side, you know, one of the top three characters of DC Comics, you know, was Superman and Batman. Wonder Woman, sort of the the uh, leg of that trilogy, and you know, they entrusted him to be the image that you saw on the comic book stands when you went to buy a Wonder Woman comic. And I think um, the same thing was true of of Black Widow. Uh, they were looking at his skill in uh, creating graphics. Uh, that could bring readers in and, and buy the books. I mean, the, the whole purpose of uh, being a cover artist for a comic book is, you know, you have to differentiate yourself from the other things on the stands and make people want to buy them. And Adam has a great ability to do that. Could you describe what his style looks like in comparison to other artists that were competing against him? He's always been well-known for drawing women in particular um, and being able to draw them in a way that's heroic, but also um, he is able to show emotions in ways that, um, you know, other people might not be as skilled at. And he has a great graphic sense. And it's, it's interesting because um, he's a self-taught artist. So, um, he, you know, he didn't go to uh, art school for this. Um, he was looking at comics, but looking at other, you know, art and uh, he came up and 
um, you know, within a couple of years, you know, he had been doing uh, comic books, interiors and things like that. But as soon as editors started seeing the comic covers he did and how well the books sold when he did the covers, they enlisted him as one of the major cover artists really in the last 20 years. Uh, and so, you know, it's and like I said, he lives right here in Atlanta. So that was kind of exciting. Yeah, definitely. I also noticed when I was researching for this interview that some of his representations of Wonder Woman was her with like a darker complexion, which I, I haven't noticed that before in other comics of Wonder Woman. Usually you see her as this white woman with black hair, but I'm not sure what ethnicity, but I, I thought that was kind of cool. The representation he was trying to show of, okay, she doesn't have to be a white woman <laughs> to be a part of the superhero realm. Because this is sort of a universal character um, and there is no you know, there's no Wonder Woman. <laughs> she doesn't exist. So you bring to her what you want to bring to her in terms of your representation. And I think that, you know, that's a, a neat thing for, for most comic artists who are choosing to work on characters, um, you know, owned by larger corporations like Marvel or DC. And one of the things that's also interesting is they those characters have an established look, an established costume, and sometimes in order to shake things up, they're looking for artists to bring something new to the table. Are they going to change the costume? Are they going to change the look? Are they going to, you know, and Wonder Woman over the years has had multiple looks. The first iteration of Wonder Woman was back in 1939. So over, you know, these seven or eight decades, uh, there have been many different looks. And I would say that Adams is one that has become iconic. Chris, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, that's the beauty of comics. To Benno's point is that every artist brings their own interpretation to it. And you'd asked earlier, why do we want to do an art show focusing Georgia artists? It's because these artists have brought their unique interpretations to characters that to me are beyond iconic. They've been around 80 years and they'll be around for years after we're all gone and you have people in our community like Adam Hughes who have contributed to that to those uh those iconic characters for decades people will look at Adam Hughes's Wonder Woman as one of the definitive interpretations of that and again he lives right here he's your neighbor he's 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 your friend he's someone who lives right here in your community and to me that's that's pretty spectacular. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> we have a living legend right here in Atlanta. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, you've got you know, a lot of guys like that. I mean, Brian Stelfreeze um, worked on the Black Panther mm -hmm. character. And when that character was reintroduced, um, you know, probably eight or nine years ago in comics, the the movies took notice and they used the costume that he had created. Yep for the character. I mean, he recreated the character. He recreated the costume. He recreated the look of um, Wakanda. And the movie people went and looked at that and used it. You know, every movie that's done typically has what's called storyboarding in which they draw the, the action out so that you can kind of figure out where things are going to go. And the storyboard people were looking at the comic books to determine how to move the story forward. Wow. So comic books have really paved the way for our modern entertainment industry. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, at the end of every movie, and to me, it's a shame that it's buried in the credits, but in the credits of uh, every movie, they typically will give a list of special thanks to. 
And Ben will tell you, it's usually a paragraph's worth of names of comic creators whose work is being drawn from to make these billion dollar movies. Like you have Dexter Vines local. He worked on Marvel's Civil War story. Well, that was made into a movie with Captain America Civil War. So, yeah, absolutely. They're contributing to, to these great, wonderful cultural things. I wanted to talk about um, another icon that you will be showcasing his work, Jack Davis. Yes. <laughs> Could either of you please tell uh, our listeners who... I'm so excited to put that stuff out there. Oh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, tell us about his so, signature style. Well, So Jack was born here in Atlanta, raised here, lived in Buckhead, went to high school here. And it, as a high school, he, he had been drawing since he was a kid. And even in his school books, like his school notebooks, um, when they asked him what he wanted to do when he grew up, he said he wanted to be a cartoon artist. And this was when he was probably six or seven years old. But in the late 1940s, he uh, got a job helping Ed Dodd, who was a local uh, comic strip artist who did Mark Trail. He was helping him do backgrounds. And Ed told him, Jack, you're too good to be doing backgrounds for me. You should go to New York and see if you can find a job there because you're you're good and you're going to be able to get a job if you want. So Jack took that advice and moved up to New York and looked around for a little while, didn't really get a lot, but then he got a job with EC Comics. And EC Comics was one of the main publishers in the early 1950s of horror, war, and science fiction comics. And so Jack was working on those things and he he had a unique style, but he also was really fast. He was able to draw pencil and ink pages as fast as some people could only pencil them. So he was able to put out a lot of work very quickly of a very high quality. But the big thing that happened with him was that in 1952, uh, EC Comics came out with Mad, with a comic book called Mad. And it was um, uh, done uh, by a guy named Harvey Kurtzman. He was the editor. And he picked Jack as one of the founding four guys who uh, drew in the first Mad comic book. In the mid-1950s, there was what everyone calls a comic book scare, that comics were leading to juvenile delinquency. And there were uh, Senate hearings on this. And what happened was they, they specifically went after EC Comics uh, because of their horror comics. And so Mad Magazine turned from a comic book to a magazine in the mid-1950s specifically to avoid what was happening in the comic book industry where every comic book had to be sent to a person who looked at it and essentially censored it. And Bill Gaines, who was the owner, didn't want to be censored, and so they changed over to Mad Magazine. And Jack stayed with Mad Magazine for a little while, but then he left for uh, quite some time, and then he ended up coming back to them later. But Jack established himself as one of the great humorists in the country. At, at one point, he was the most highly paid humorist, I guess, illustra humorous illustration uh, in the country. And he was doing work for just about everything you can think of. He did gum cards. He did Valentine's cards. He did album covers. He did movie posters. Uh, and perhaps most famously, he did over a dozen covers for Time magazine. Uh, he was also one of the mainstays at TV Guide. And so 
uh, you know, he really established himself as as a preeminent illustrator in the United States. And, you know, he had been living in New York, but then he moved back to Georgia uh, probably 30 years ago and continued working down on the coast and sending his stuff in, which at the time, you know, most cartoonists lived in New York because that's where the publishers were. Um, but as things changed and people were able to mail in or send in their things, and, and of course now they can email their things in, um, it's allowed people to not have to live next to where the publishers are in order to get published. Wow. And it was cool to read that he was still uh, drawing into his 90s. Yeah, that's when I first got to meet. I, uh, years ago, I lived in Brunswick uh, and I was working as a reporter and I'm 23 years old and my editor goes, hey, there's a guy who lives over here. Uh, I don't know. You're you're into comics. Do you, We need to go interview him. And I said, okay, who is it? And he goes, uh, a guy named Jack Davis. You ever heard of him? And yeah, yeah, I've heard of him. <laughs> and so I got to go interview him multiple times. And it was really, it was one of those experiences where I'm trying not to be, hey, Jack Davis, what what is it like being Jack Davis? Because uh-huh. like actually in the room with, with a legend. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. I bet that was tough to not be starstruck. Oh, it was super tough not to go full Chris Farley show. <laughs> Remember that time you did Time Magazine? That was awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and Jack's well-known in Georgia in particular because he was a huge University of Georgia football fan. And over probably the last 20 or 25 years of his life, he did multiple pieces for the University of Georgia for their football team. He did a bunch of iconic uh, drawings of the Bulldog and he, and, you know, during uh, when they published uh, magazines for the alumni magazines, they would have uh, pieces by Jack with a Bulldog, you know, doing various things or fighting a Gator maybe for, you know, the Georgia Florida game or, you know, any of the other, you know, SEC teams. So, um, and every year, um, almost until he passed for, for probably 20 or 30 years, um, he published an annual poster of the Bulldog uh, against each of their SEC opponents. And there would be, uh, you know, the Commodores and they would have the, the, uh, the War Eagle or they would have the Elephant for, you know, Alabama or whatever, um, all caricatured by Jack um, on these posters with a big Bulldog in the center. And what's crazy is like he's hammering these things out and each one is a masterpiece. Will you be bringing any UGA prints to the showcase? Yes, I will be bringing a Georgia piece. piece. Awesome. That's wonderful. So, Chris, uh, lastly, I wanted to ask, how can attendees of the showcase win an original Jack Davis sketch? Well, me and Benno were talking about that. What we think we're going to do is going to be one of those. You got to be present to win and we are going to split a deck of cards in half. We are going to cut them down the middle. And at the end of the day, uh, probably around 5.30, we will start drawing cards. And if we draw the ace of spades, top half, whoever has the bottom half and match the card will be the one to walk away with that Jack Davis sketch. That sounds fun. (laughs) Yeah. And by the way, even if you're not in, just the chance to get a Jack Davis sketch. That's a, that's a, to me, that, that's just one of those, those opportunities don't come around that often. Yeah, we're really excited about it. And I want to thank Jack Davis's son, Jack Davis III, who's an architect here in Atlanta for allowing me to, uh, to do that giveaway of some of his father's sketches. Chris Brenneman, co-owner of his store, Infinite Realities, Comics, Games, and More in Tucker.
He was joined by comic book artwork enthusiast Benno Rothschild, whose collection is a part of the Georgia Artist Comic Art Showcase this Saturday at Infinite Realities. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. It's time now for our series, Speaking of Art, where we hear from local visual artists in their own words. My name is Arnold Butler. I'm an emotional artist from Atlanta, Georgia. And what I mean by an emotional artist, I really don't prescribe to any style or technique. I just allow my emotions to guide every brushstroke, every line that I place on canvas. For me, I kind of have a different approach to art. Art is therapy for me. So I paint to help translate emotions in me that I find difficult to communicate verbally. I like to tell people I don't paint pictures, I paint my prayers. Radcliffe Bailey once stated that the key to making masterful art is to make your art so personal that it becomes universal. And when I heard that, it gave me a new focus and a new approach for my work. A lot of my paintings, you can tell that they're humans, but they don't have the form of a human. As a young child, my father, he would paint late at night. He would wait till everybody went to sleep. And then that's when he would pull out his materials, play his jazz music, and he would just zone out. And I remember being a young kid waking up, kind of sneaking down the stairs and just, just watching him. And what used to amaze me wasn't even the painting that he was creating. It was how locked in he was. It seemed as if he was in a different dimension. And I just used to be so amazed by that. When I became an adult, once I started creating, I found myself locked in the same zone that I used to watch my father. And at that time, that's when I understood what he was experiencing. Art or visual art of becoming a painter was just a natural extension of what I was already on. Uh, prior to my painting career, I was a writer. Did a lot of poetry, wrote a lot of short stories, things like that. And I got to a point where I was just writing so much that I felt like I needed something stronger or I needed a different medium to convey the message that was inside of me. And I felt like words, the words weren't strong enough. The reason why I wanted to paint was it put me in a zone mentally that I couldn't achieve if I was not painting. And the more that I painted and the longer that I painted, I was locked in that mental zone and it allowed me to uncover and confront 
a lot of dormant issues, a lot of dormant memories that I had put in the back of my mind. And once I was able to make this connection between painting and ultimately resetting mentally, spiritually, I was obsessed and I continued to do it. What inspires me? It'll have to be my beautiful, soon-to-be five-year-old daughter, Poet Butler. Her energy for life is a constant inspiration. And it also makes me want to be a, the best father I can to her because I want that energy for life to remain untapped and not be compromised. Atlanta has always been my home, so um, this has always been fertile ground for me. The creative energy here is unmatched. I've been all over the United States, and um, Atlanta's creative energy is, is something different. I like to tell people that um, Georgia is is different, you know, a lot of different places have to grow on you, but Georgia has a tendency to grow up in you and you can't help but to um, set roots here. And strong creative roots grow here. We have a legacy and the legacy is going to continue. I really don't go to too many places that showcase art because I have a lot of like artist friends, particularly like a lot of underground artist friends that aren't in galleries and stuff. So we usually like keep up with each other and we kind of check out each other's work. And um, just want to kind of let you all know that there is a lot of artists, a lot of great artists that are yet and soon to be discovered here in Atlanta. You can check out my website, www.ab2ether com to check out all my recent work recent series and also you can follow me on instagram at ab number two ether e-t-h-e-r emotional artist arnold butler more information about butler's work as well as our entire speaking of series is on our website, wabe.org slash speaking of. If you've ever imagined yourself as a stand-up comedian, Dad's Garage Theater might help you toward that goal with their free community night. Up-and-coming improvisers can try out comedic material in various formats every Wednesday evening. Here's why Dad's Garage Artistic Director Tim Stoltenberg created Community Improv Nights. Well, Atlanta has a, a large and growing improv community here, and truly the only way for someone to develop and get better at improv is by doing it in front of an audience and uh it's great because it allows the community to come together and you know dads really wants to support the community and not just inside of dads but outside of dads and uh, we are super excited about this program community nights offer four different formats 
open jam nights, Wheel of Destiny. Attendees put their name on the list and spin the wheel as fate decides the scene, sketch, and form of improv. Bring your own team. Participants sign up on Dad's Garage website. Then, improv teams are picked at random and given 20 minutes to show their stuff. Stand-up routines get 5 to 10 minutes. And there's the wild card. A Dad's Garage ensemble member will host and choose the format for each of the improvisers. Stoltenberg shared his favorite Wednesday event. Each one is kind of different and unique because you never know who's going to show up, so you get new people each time. I think the uh, the bring your own team is really exciting because you get to see groups that you've never heard or seen of before, and you're just like, wow, I didn't know that talent was here in Atlanta. More information about the free community nights is on their website, dadsgarage.com slash community. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll celebrate International Women's Day and the Indian holiday of Holi with Chef Palak Patel, owner of Dash and Chutney. Also, the Consul General of Ireland with Emory Professor Geraldine Higgins discuss St. Patrick's Day and read Irish poems. Plus, our series Speaking of Music highlights Nikki and the Phantom Callers. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen at wabe.org or wherever you find your podcasts. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.